today's scripture reading is going to be from Hebrews uh, 11, 1 to 2, and then also 5 to 6. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Two weeks ago, we began this series on faith as we were going through Hebrews chapter 11, and we talked about the foundations of faith, noting that the substance of faith is the foundation upon which we base our life, and it's a gift from God. Another way of saying that is that the substance or foundation of faith is the belief that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will. That's the foundation. That's the base upon which everything is built. My wife and I were kind of talking about this concept the other day as we were driving, and it reminded me of a number of years ago when we were visiting our our daughter and kids, and Mariel's oldest daughter, her name is Grace, and she was learning how to jump in the pool and dive and things of that sort. I was in the pool, and she was on the edge. I said, come on, Grace, jump. And she looked at me. She came up to the edge. She said, come, come closer, come closer. And so in the beginning, she, she knew, she had faith that I could catch her. But it wasn't a conviction yet. She came right to the edge, so I, she was almost touching me, and then she would kind of roll into my arms. Well, little by little, I'd step back, and I'd step back until I was like two yards away, and she'd jump with her arms out. Her faith had, been, had become a conviction upon which she could then act. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across here. He's saying that because of the evidence, because of the evidence that God gave through His creation, verse 3 of chapter 11, and through the examples in Scripture, all the rest of chapter 11, That substance, that foundation of faith becomes a conviction upon which we live. And with that conviction then, we are then to act boldly for God because faith without action is dead. Last week we looked at Abel as a first example, who was an example of the basics of faith. He heard God's word, he believed God's word, he did God's word. Just to break it, just to summarize it, God had revealed the right type of sacrifice for sin to be offered. He believed to the point that that became a conviction for him, that he was going to do that. And because of that conviction, he obeyed and put it into action And the result then of that was that God commended him for his faith and blessed him with righteousness. Not because of his action, but because of the faith behind his action. Now as we continue through this fascinating 11th chapter of Hebrews, we're going to find that each example that the writer used kind of brings out a different aspect of faith in each one of these examples. 
And my hope is that not only are we going to grow in our knowledge of faith, but that knowledge will become a greater aspect of a conviction for us in which then God can use us in greater and greater ways. Today we're going to be looking at a man by the name of Enoch. Now most of us know that he was a man that walked with God and didn't die. But what does that mean, and how can I apply that to my life? I mean, I'm assuming I'm going to die here, so what's the connection? Well, let me reread those two verses in Hebrews 11 again that pertain to Enoch in particular, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken... He was commended as one who pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Now, you remember that the reason this chapter was written, with this long list of the heroes of the faith, it was written to convince the new Jewish believers that faith in God was uh, was far more than just doing certain things. It was not you can't get to God through works and through practicing. Uh, it was only faith is the only way to approach God. And then the writer is telling them that they they had been misinformed. Uh, I think the word today would be misinformation. They had been given misinformation all their lives about uh, how to arrive or approach God. So he goes back to the Old Testament. This is what they know, and he starts at chapter 10, verse 38 there in Hebrews, quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Now, justification is being made right with God. Reconciliation with God comes through faith alone and not by works, and that's the message of the Hebrew writer here. This is an Old Testament truth that is then expanded on in its fullness through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first example was Abel, who shows us how one enters the life of faith. And if Abel tells us how we enter the life of faith, then Enoch then tells us how we live that life of faith, or how we walk by faith. Now to get to the story of Enoch, you probably guess that we go back to Genesis chapter 5. There's one commentator that said if he would, could name this chapter, give it a title, he would entitle it, And He Died Chapter. Um, he remarked that if you, if you go back and uh, look through that chapter, you see the list of descendants from Adam and how many years they, they live. But in every case, such as the end of verse 5, where it closes out Adam's life, it says, And He Died. It closes out Seth's life in verse 8 and says, And He Died. And just keeps going. Enosh, different from Enoch, in verse 11, and he died. And Kenan, and he died. Mahalalel, down in verse 17, lived 895 years, and he died. Verse 20, all the days of Jerah were 962 years, and he died. They all died. Therefore, it's a chapter of, and they died. But all of a sudden, in verse 21, in that chapter, something breaks that trend. When, and it says, when Enoch had lived 65 years... He became the father of Methuselah. We all know who Methuselah was, or at least how long he lived. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. So that's different all of a sudden in chapter 5. Enoch didn't die, just like we read in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, just a side note here, a word about Methuselah, and we'll tie this in at the end of the message as well. Enoch is the father of Methuselah who actually outlived his dad, by 700 years. Methuselah's name in Hebrew means man of the dart or man of the javelin. It can also mean, according to a Hebrew website that I was looking at, when he is dead, it shall be sent. What shall be sent? The javelin. What God was saying in the the name given to Methuselah was that he would not die until judgment was sent out. Methuselah would live until judgment came. So from his birth, his very name was a prophecy of judgment. The wicked were warned of a coming judgment. And it's interesting to me that in the name of Methuselah itself, you have this prophecy of of judgment uh, that's coming. But at the same time, if you think about it, we see the grace of God being exercised in the fact that Methuselah lived longer than anybody else on earth. And so God's warning extended 969 years, giving people that opportunity for almost a thousand years to turn and come back to God. That's grace. That's mercy. And what was the judgment? Well, in the year that Methuselah died, what happened? The flood came. That's the judgment. Now, we'll come back to this concept of judgment in a moment, but let's let's jump back to Enoch again here. So Enoch, Scripture tells us, only lived 365 years. And he is identified as having walked with God. In fact, verse 22 uh, says, Enoch walked faithfully with God. And then it's repeated two verses later in verse 24. uh, Enoch walked faithfully with God. So after Methuselah's birth at age 65, Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years. Now think about ourselves here. Could we, in the corrupt world that we live in today, could we say that we would walk faithfully with God for 300 years? You say, well, I mean, this is 6,000 years later, right? Um, Enoch didn't live in such a corrupt world as we live in. Really? I think Enoch lived in a horribly corrupt world. In fact, it was so corrupt that God drowned the entire civilization. And before the flood, he said that all the imagination of man was only evil continually. And God regretted, it says, that he had even made man. It didn't take long after the fall to have the first murder. It didn't take long after the fall to have the first adultery. And on and on, the depravity then continued. And it got so bad that after only about 1,500 years, God drowned the entire globe. We're actually going to be looking at that next Sunday. Something to look forward to. So what can we learn from a man who walked faithfully with God for 300 years? The story of Enoch is kind of a pre-flood spiritual lesson for us. And it's not about harsh legalism, which unfortunately most people assume the Old Testament is. Not at all. You see, God God was not a distant or demanding deity which you appease by sacrifices and ceremonies and, and morality. Spirituality in the very earliest years was a matter of walking with God. 
God was a companion that you had a personal relationship with. Enoch had that, an intimate communion with God. It must have been very similar from what Adam and Eve had when they were in the garden. You remember that they walked with God in the cool of the evening. Now that was a very physical walking with God. But they had that intimate communion and relationship. And it's interesting that if you'd you'd read this passage in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'd find that they translate that this verse here in Genesis not as Enoch walked with God, but that Enoch pleased God. And perhaps they did that because that's exactly what Hebrews chapter 11 said. That's how the Holy Spirit uh, inspired the writer to write it. He was commended as one who pleased God, it says. He must admit a man who recognized his sin, like Abel. He no doubt acknowledged the need for sacrifice, as Abel did. He understood uh, what the fitting sacrifice for sin was. He must have been a man who trusted God in the truest and purest sense for his salvation and his forgiveness and his life. He walked with God. Now you remember in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, Example of Noah here says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. There it is again. He also walked faithfully with God. This was not a physical walking, but a spiritual walking, a spiritual relationship. Don't you love the fact that here we are in the earliest era of human history, and it's all about intimacy, and it's all about a personal fellowship, it's all about a personal relationship, it's all about communing, and it's not about a distant God and people living under some kind of a legalistic system. Now, the term walk is a very important concept here as we look at this passage. It's talking about a step-by-step fellowship, a daily communion with God. And really, this is the way the early chapters of Scripture, in the early scriptures of Scripture, that someone is identified as being reconciled with God. And that's what salvation is all about, is it not? Because Noah walked with God and he escaped judgment. Abraham walked with God, he received blessing. Enoch walked with God and he escaped death. Folks, salvation and eternal life was not a new concept just for the New Testament. Very early in the history recorded in Genesis, God was revealing truth. A part of the truth that God was, was revealing was that there was eternal life and people could have a right relationship with Him and enter into His eternal presence. Even Job had that confidence. In chapter 13 of Job, it says, Though He slay me, yet I will hope in Him. In chapter 19, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. They knew about the resurrection. They knew about the afterlife. And God chose Enoch to be an illustration of that in Hebrews. He's the illustration of salvation's great promise. And what's that promise? It's that next life. It's that eternal life, right? Leaving all this pain and sorrow behind and entering into the presence of the Lord. Verse 24 of Genesis 5 puts it this way, this way, Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. When it says God took him away, in the Hebrew the word describes a sudden, inexplicable disappearance. Gone. 
And the explanation for his disappearance, of course, is given here. God took him. That's simple. He's a model of faith that walks with God, being rewarded with eternal life because he walked with God. Well, that's the story as it's laid out in Genesis. So with that in mind, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11 now and see if we can get some insight at, uh, into what it means to walk with God for us. Now, the writer of Hebrews sums up Enoch's life in verse 5, just saying very simply, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. And then starting in verse 6, comes a lesson as to what it means to walk with God or what it means to please God. Now, the overarching lesson that comes across to us is that the only way to please God is by faith. Verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's where it all starts. Without faith, we can't please God. We can't be reconciled to God. We can't walk with God. We can't enter in the glories of eternal life. That is a statement that ought to be underlined in everybody's mind. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's emphasized all the way through the New Testament. Works won't do it. Being good won't do it. In Romans 2, Paul tells us that the Jews who were very religious gained nothing by their external religion. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts, he says, is faith. Ephesians 2, of course, a verse that we most of us know well, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now let's break that down a little bit. What what does it mean to put our faith in Him? Well, first of all, we must believe that He exists. It's got to be a starting point. Listen to verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists. The Greek actually says anyone who comes to him must believe that he is. It's just a third-person pronoun that's used, which addresses the first-person pronoun name that God uses for himself, right? I am who I am. We need to believe in the great I am. We must believe that he is. Isn't that what the world has been trying to erase from our minds? Over, over these years and years, and most of, most of the other teaching uh, in, our, in our school systems, there is no God. Don't believe that He is. Don't believe that He exists. But that's the basis of faith. Anyone who comes to Him must believe that He is, that He exists. Folks, the basis of faith, the foundations of faith, the substance of faith is being attacked and undermined. Who doesn't want us to believe that God even exists? Satan. It's the last thing that he wants us to believe. Folks, this is a spiritual battle of the mind. He who comes to God must believe that he is who he is. This is not just saying, oh, I believe there's a God. Oh, I, I, I believe in God. I'm, I'm very spiritual. But it says, I, 
It's saying, I believe that he is who he is, the only true God. And how do we know that God is the God who is? It's by means of his revelation. He has revealed himself, even this early in human history, in that first thousand years of human history, God has revealed himself again and again and again. And people knew who he claimed to be, and Enoch believed who he was. It's not enough for someone to believe in the concept of God or the idea of God or the notion of God or the, the reality of God or even a higher power or a higher intelligence. We, we hear those phrases being thrown around. We must believe in the God who is God. And for us today, that's even further defined. Not only do we have to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, but now added to that, because of further revelation, we must believe in the one who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we can't be saved apart from Jesus Christ, because that's an incomplete view of God. You see, verse 5 tells us where Enoch's uh, reconciliation with God begins. He, he, he believed in the true God, and he, as he had been revealed to, to Enoch, a God of holiness, a God of righteousness, a God who hated sin, a God who required sacrifice, death for sin, a God who had made it clear that men can't earn their way to him. He believed all that. He believed God to be the God that God is. But now for us, God has revealed himself in an even greater way through Jesus Christ. It's not good enough for people to say, I believe in God. Folks, the vast majority of the world believes in God. It's become very popular uh, to, to say, well, you, you can believe in God if your concept of God is monotheistic, one God. In fact, the majority of those who live in the Middle East, they will say that we, we believe in the same God because we believe in one God. But that can't be true because they do not believe in Jesus Christ. They don't believe in the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they strongly deny Christ's deity the one, and his oneness with God the Father. People who are stuck on the God of the Old Testament and refuse to look beyond to the fuller revelation of God, Paul describes as being ignorant you remember when Paul was in Athens there in Acts chapter 17, he spoke to the people about the unknown God. Listen to what he says. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead, speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ. He's referring to the fact that in the past, God had not yet fully revealed himself. But now you cannot come to God if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh and whose deity was manifested and validated by the resurrection from the dead. So the first thing we note is that Enoch believed in the true God as he was revealed to him. He believed in the God who is who he is, the great I am. Secondly, we, he believed that he was a rewarder of those who seek him. Look at verse 6 again. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
Do you know what that's saying? That God is the Redeemer. He is the Savior. Enoch believed that God rewards those who seek Him. We have to understand that He is not a God who we have to be afraid of. Enoch believed that God was a personal, forgiving, loving, gracious God who who would provide salvation to those who sought Him. That's the greatest reward. That's what being a rewarder means here. Enoch knew that. And uh, what it boils down to is that Enoch believed in the God who was a Savior of sinners, who would embrace a penitent heart who came by faith and sought Him. That sounds very New Testament-ish-y, doesn't it? And why wouldn't it? We've got the same God. David said to his son, in Solomon, uh, his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, If you seek Him, you will find Him. But if you forsake Him, He'll cast you off forever. That's basically John 3.18, is it not? Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. In Psalm 119, David says, I seek you with all my heart. Proverbs 8, I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. In Jeremiah chapter 29, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Again, that's the greatest command that was given by Jesus. Love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart. If you seek God with all of your heart, you will find Him. Folks, this is an amazing truth that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. No other religion has a God who is a rewarder. All other religions have a God who is a punisher or who is indifferent or who is distant, who is to be appeased, whose primary attitude is one of anger. But the true and living God is a rewarder of those who seek Him, even though they are sinners, even though they cannot commend themselves, even though they can't do anything to achieve reconciliation with Him and can't on their own please Him. The psalmist says in Psalm 58, 11, there is a reward for the righteous. Or Proverbs eleven eighteen, to him that seeks righteousness shall be a sure reward. Over and over and over again, God rewards. All these Old Testament statements about God culminate in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a rewarding God. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. You remember how lavish he is as described in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with what every spiritual blessing in Christ talk about rewards he never promised to reward us with perfect health he never promised to reward us with great um, health or wealth or happiness here on earth that's a false gospel He is, however, a lavish rewarder of those who come on his terms. He grants forgiveness. He grants a new heart. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us eternal life. He gives us blessing and mercy and grace and love and joy and and, and peace and and heaven and, and power over evil. It's all there. Those are all part of his reward. So what was it about Enoch's walk that was so special? In Genesis 5, he's described twice as walking faithfully with God. Here in Hebrews 11, he's described as pleasing 
to God. Wouldn't that be a great epitaph on your tombstone? He was pleasing to God. She was pleasing to God. Wouldn't that be great? That says it all, doesn't it? That would be amazing. So what does it really mean when it says Enoch walked faithfully with God? First of all, it assumes reconciliation. In Amos chapter 3, verse 3, we read, How can two walk together unless they're agreed? That's what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Paul describes the same thing on the negative side in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? The obvious answer is none. So God and Enoch walk together. It assumes agreement. It assumes harmony. It assumes reconciliation. Therefore, assumes salvation. Enoch was a saved man. He walked with God and therefore is reconciled to God and they walked in agreement. The second thing that comes to mind when we talk about walking with God, it's not only reconciliation, but there's a conformed nature. What do I mean by that? Because of our fallen sinful nature, our nature is not compatible with God's nature. There has to be a transformation that takes place to conform our nature to God's nature. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That only happens when the Holy Spirit awakens our spirit from, being, uh, from laying dead and dormant, so that now our spirit and the Spirit of God, God can commune together. There is now a corresponding nature. There's a conformed nature. I can't walk with God unless I possess some faculty with which we share in common. And that's the amazing reality of what salvation does for us. It not only reconciles us to God, but in that reconciliation, God then conforms us to His nature. We now walk in the light as He is in the light, and therefore we have fellowship with Him. Our darkness has now become light. Thirdly, walking with God not only assumes reconciliation and a conformed nature, but it also assumes a change in our moral compass. You see, God doesn't just walk with anybody. Again, Paul said it very clearly, do not be yoked together with unbelievers For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? God is absolutely righteous, and sinners are absolutely unrighteous. So something has to dramatically change in a person's moral character. In 1 Peter 1.16, Peter reiterates what God said in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, verse 2. Be holy, because I am holy. We need to be on the same page here. God's holiness will never change. So if we're going to walk with God, our walk needs to be on the way of holiness. In fact, that's what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 7, verse 18, when he said, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The fruit of holiness. Not only are our minds to be transformed, but our moral character then shows the evidence that our minds are transformed. And if it doesn't, we have every reason to doubt a person's salvation. 
So before we can walk with God, we have to be viewed by God as righteous. And that only happens through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit with a true transformation of the heart. Then Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. Enoch walked in communion with God for 300 years. But it was more than that because he pleased God. And I think that has to be a desire in our heart, a desire to please God. It's something that we pursue. Pleasing God is intentional. We don't please God just because we're such great people. Spending time with Him gives us a desire to be with Him and with His body, the church. We just don't want to be with His head. We want to be with the body of Christ. Hebrews 10.25 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Meeting together on Sunday, meeting together in a Bible study and prayer time, it's an encouragement just in itself to be able to see other people. We are encouraging one another just by our presence. It's not all about us. It's about the body of Christ. Emphasis on Christ. It's part of walking with God, being with His body in close proximity. You know, the Old Testament talks about walking with God. The New Testament, we're told uh, to walk in the Spirit. Same concept. 3 John, verse 4, we're told to walk in truth. Romans 13, we're told to walk in honesty. Ephesians 5, we're told to walk in love and walk in wisdom. Ephesians 10, we're told to walk in holiness. Ephesians 4 calls it the worthy walk. Hebrews 10, uh, 25 tells us to walk together. That's that sweet communion with God. We have an example and a pattern, of course, in Jesus Christ himself. 1 John 2, 6 says, The one that says he abides in him. And I would trust that all of us could raise our hand to to that. He said, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk as he walked. Walking with God in perfect harmony with God, being holy as God is holy. Jesus walked in that perfect communion, perfect harmony with his Father. This is our faith walk. And Enoch was a model of this for us there in Hebrews. In fact, Enoch is actually a type for Christ in the Old Testament in this aspect. In Hebrews 11, it tells us that Enoch was commended as one who pleased God. Remember when Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist? A dove came down on him, and they heard this voice that said, This is my son in whom, what? I am well pleased. So Jesus pleased God just as Enoch pleased God. We've seen in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked faithfully with God, and we just read in 1 John 2, 6 that if we say we abide in him, in Christ, we ought to walk even as he walked. So Jesus walked faithfully with his father just as Enoch walked faithfully with God. And Genesis 5 again tells us that Enoch was no more because God took him away. We know what that reference is. We're told in Acts 1 that Jesus was taken up before their very eyes. So Jesus was taken up into heaven just as Enoch was taken by God. Fascinating. There's one last thing that needs to be said here about Enoch, and that is that he was a preacher of judgment, just as Jesus was a preacher of judgment. We find in the very short letter of Jude, just before the book of Revelation, in Jude verse 14, one chapter, Jude's been writing about false teachers and false prophets, and he says this in verses 14 and 15, Enoch, referring back to Enoch, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, he preached, 
about them, talking about those false teachers, quote, see the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. Judgment's coming. That's strong preaching. This was a message against the ungodly. He preached it for 300 years. The Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone. He was a judgment preacher. And here is a man whose character and walk with God showed up in the power of his preaching, and his preaching was judgment. Why? Because judgment was coming. It was bound up in his own son's name, Methuselah. And that's where we're bringing this back around again. Methuselah's name referred to the judgment. And at the end of Methuselah's life, as we mentioned, judgment came in the form of the flood. But the truth of the matter is, that's not really the focal point of the, 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 the meaning of that prophecy Remember, prophecy always, almost always had a two-fold fulfillment. So yes, the preliminary fulfillment was in the flood. That was def- definite judgment. But his prophecy was actually looking ahead to the final judgment when the Lord comes with thousands upon thousands of angels as Enoch preached way back then. That's a prophecy, a prophecy of the return of Christ. That's a prophecy of the end of human history. Enoch never saw either judgment Not the flood, and certainly not the final judgment. But he knew it was coming. And he preached. He preached. He preached. You know, a moment ago we said that Enoch was a type for Christ. But you know what? He's also a type for the church, type for you and I. The writer of Hebrew used him as an example for us, as a model for us. Enoch walked faithfully God, we are told, to walk in the Spirit. Enoch pleased God. We are told in Romans 12, 1, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and what? Pleasing to God. We are to please God. Enoch preached the gospel, called people to return to God because judgment was coming. We are told to go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because Jesus is coming. And when he comes, there is no second chance. And fourthly, Enoch was taken by God, and we too are looking forward to be taken by God in the coming rapture. When Christ returns. Here's a final question, or two or three, and they're simple as we close. Are we walking faithfully with God? Are we pleasing to God in our life? Are we preaching and making disciples? Are we ready for the return of Christ? Do we truly believe that God is who he says he is and believe that he'll do what he says he'll do? Has our belief become a conviction that then acts? In the moment, we're going to sing a song we sang last week called This We Know, and it begins with two bold statements right off the top. You are who you say you are. You'll do what you'll say you'll do. Does our life reflect that? Father, this morning, we thank you that you are the great I am. You exist 
before we know of anything about the beginning, and you will exist forever, and you are existing right now. You do not change. Your word does not change. And Father, I thank you that you have loved us so much that not only have you given us Jesus Christ as our Savior, but Father, you have given us your Holy Spirit as our sanctifier, our purifier, and the one who empowers us to live a life that is pleasing to you. And Father, I pray that where we may have faith and belief in our heads, that that might be uh, taken down into our hearts to become an, a full conviction of who you are and what you say as being true, and then that conviction becoming action in our lives. So, Father, I pray that you would do that new work. Work in our hearts. Transform our minds. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.